Today's passage is from Revelation 5, verses 6 through 10. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God and they shall reign on the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you were with us last week, we started a series that we're calling Man is Dead. Uh, I was talking to a buddy uh, about it this week, and he said, man, that kind of sounds depressing, doesn't it? And I was like, yeah, it kind of is. Um, we're talking about the disenchantedness of our age. We live in an age, though confessionally still very Christian, we're defining it as uh, instinctively very secular. We live in an age with, with secular instincts. We live in an age that makes its decisions, that has its impulses, not with the Lord, not with the fear of God in mind. And in this secular age, when you don't have a created order, right? If there's no creator, if there's no God, there's no created order, there's no created morality, there's no received identity, there's no telos, right? There's no end to our lives. There's no great purpose to our lives in mind. In an age like that, you're left to go and create all of that for yourself, right? You're, go, you're left to go and figure out your own morality. You're, you're left to go and figure out your own identity. You're, you're left to go and figure out your own purpose, right? Now, at first, you hear that, and it sounds incredible. It's like, yeah, of course. I want that kind of freedom. I want that kind of liberation. But what we found in our age, and if you weren't here last week, I encourage you to listen to last week's sermon, is we live in an age now that actually is less satisfied, uh, has less sense of belonging and purpose and identity, is more frustrated, is more divided, is more angry, has less sense of identity and purpose than ever before. We live in an age where people are asking the question, what does it mean to be human? And in an age like that, man is dead, right? We, we have lost this sense of identity. Now, Christians, if you know the Lord in Christ, you should not be so disenchanted because we believe in a God who is there, in a God who is glorious, in a God who, who has given us purpose and meaning and identity, in a God who does have this great end in mind for our lives. As Christians, you should not be so confused. We believe that this same God is not just out there somewhere, but that he has revealed himself. He's spoken to us. He's given us his word. He's, he's shown himself to us in his son, Jesus Christ, the Lord. And, and what we're really gonna be doing uh, over the next few weeks is looking at a few areas where we as a culture, we as a secular age, are particularly confused. But to start the conversation, I wanna go back to where we started last week, which is 
how God has made us. This God who has spoken, this God who is there, this God who has set us into being, this God who's given us in, has actually given us an amazing identity and he's told us what it is in his word, that we are made, human beings, are made in the image of God. And that is a fundamentally altering uh, perspective on life if you believe that. And, and we said four things last week. And, and again, I, if you weren't here, I encourage you to listen. But we said four things. First of all, that means that we're sacred, that you are eternal beings. You've been made by God. There is value to your life. You're not just some accident that happened in the cosmos, that God created you. God calls you into being for sacred identity and for sacred purpose. We also said that you're relational, that we, and this is an amazing thing to say, we, we say this all the time, uh, kind of callously in church world, but we can know God. You can know God. God has created you to know him. He has created you so that you could know that he knows you, that he loves you. And we also said that we're functional. God has given us certain functions to carry out. There is, there is a sense of purpose in being made in the image of God. There are things to do, things to achieve. God has designed uh, in our lives in this world. And then finally, that we're his representatives, that actually in the way that we live out uh, our relationship with God, the functions of God, and the way that we live out this sacred life, we're actually representing the Lord. God can be known in certain ways through our lives. Now, I wanna stop here because I wanna reiterate one more thing. And this came up in our teaching meeting this week. Lou Priolo uh, brought it up, and I'm, I'm really grateful for this. You, you can misunderstand image of God it all depends on where the emphasis is. You can emphasize that I have been made in the image of God, that I have all of these functions, that I can do all of these things, that I am this special person. And you know what? Maybe I ought to do something for God because he needs me, right, to do something for him. Or you can have an understanding of, no, I have been made in the image of God. God, that my whole life, that my whole purpose is from God and for God, that I am nothing unless God has spoken me into being, unless God has given me these purposes, unless God has given me these functions, that my whole life is for him. And your perspective on that and your emphasis on that radically changes the way that you will live your whole life and certainly the way that you'll understand these things that we're going to be talking about over the next few weeks. In two weeks, we're going to talk about work. How do we understand ourselves as workers, right? How do, that's an area where our society has become very confused in the secular age. Next week, we're gonna talk about sex and sexuality. How do we understand that in light of who we are in the image of God? But today, an area where our world has become incredibly divided, uh, incredibly torn, incredibly confused, we're gonna be talking about race and ethnicity. Now, some of you even hearing that are like, oh man, I should have slept in today. I needed the extra hour of sleep. This is uncomfortable. But that's the point. We, we haven't really thought deeply about these things. Many of us don't have a robust biblical theology of race and ethnicity. In fact, we a lot of times just come at these things only through the lens of our own personal experiences or only through uh, the lens of something that we've heard or read. And this kind of humanistic, man-centered understanding of ethnicity has led to some of the greatest atrocities that human beings who are made in the image of God has led to some of the greatest atrocities that human beings have ever committed. Slavery, war, genocide. 
And these things aren't very far away. I mean, it should bother us. I hope you are bothered by this, that right now, right now, this morning in China, more than a million people are being kept in concentration camps. Basically what are concentration camps? The Uyghur people are being trapped. Tens of thousands of them have been put to death because of their ethnicity, because of their culture, because that's happening. These things aren't like, oh yeah, back in the day when human beings weren't so advanced, we had to deal with these things. No, this is happening right now. There are human right atrocities going on all over. The- we are so severely confused about this in big ways and in small ways. On the other side of the coin though, when people talk about these things, we can talk about them as if race and ethnicity doesn't exist at all. Like, oh, I don't see color, or uh, that doesn't really exist here, or we're kind of all the same. And that can also feel a little disingenuous, right? Uh, I understand the instinct there, I understand the impulse, but the, the truth is, is that people do have different impulses in different cultures. Uh, and, and we should understand. So how do we understand these things um, rightly? How do we understand these things from God's perspective? Now, I want to start the conversation at the end, okay? Let's, let's begin at the end. Let's begin when everything is right and is whole. And that is what Abigail read for us. The book of Revelation, it's, it's one of those books that it, 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 it's very symbolic. It's apocalyptic literature it can be very hard to understand, right? It's one of those books that if you've never read a book of the Bible, don't start in the book of Revelation, right? It's a, it's a hard one to just jump into. But, but actually, this passage that we're looking at today is incredibly clear. And, and it's talking about the worthiness of Jesus. And it is saying that at the end of all things, when, when, when the worthiness of Christ is known, that he will be worshiped, that he will be recognized by people from every tribe, from every language, from every people, from every nation. The word nation is translated from the Greek ethne, from all ethnicities, right? All peoples, all different ethnicities, right? This is important to understand. It's, it's, it's not that at the end of all things, um, everybody will be united and everybody will be the exact same. No, the, the diverse people, this kingdom of priests that Christ is calling is from all the languages and all the people and all the tribes and all the ethnes. So three things as we think about this that I wanna look at with you. First of all, when man was created, when man was scattered, And when man is redeemed, and of course I'm using man there universally to talk about men and women, humanity. So what happened when man was created? Well, let's go back to a verse that we looked at last week, okay? So again, verse 27, Genesis chapter one, um, we read, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. So I wanna reiterate what I just said. And we looked at these four kind of ideas, what it means to be made in the image of God. God created humanity, man and and woman, in his image, sacred beings, relational, with certain capacities or functions to be his representatives, okay? And then what? Look at verse 28. And God blessed them, and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and here's the key, fill the earth, Fill the earth and subdue it. God's plan was that as humanity 
filled the earth. We would spread out. We would express ourselves. Different ethnes, different cultures would develop, different skin tones, different styles. And as these different ethnes and as these different cultures developed, God's glory would be manifest in the filling, in the spreading out, in the diversity of humanity in all of his creation. That was God's plan and that was God's command. Spread out, fill the earth, go and fill this earth and let these different cultures and ethnies develop among you. That was God's command, but what did people do? They did the opposite. They said, no, we're not gonna spread out. We're gonna come together. And actually there's a, a very interesting account of this in Genesis 11, it's kind of the last major story in this introductory section of the Bible. And in Genesis 11:4, all the people are together. They have disobeyed God's command to fill the earth. They've disobeyed God's command to spread out. And it says, let us build a city with a tower on its top in the heavens. And this is key. And let us make a name for ourselves. God's design. He, God, created us in his image to display his glory. And he said, fill out, spread out, fill the earth. Go make a name for me. Spread out through the earth. Develop in different ways. Develop different cultures and ethnicities. And as you do, go make a name for me. And what did people do? They all stuck together and they built a tower and they said, no, we're gonna make a name for ourselves. We're not gonna make a name for you, God. We're gonna make a name for ourselves. Look at the next phrase. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. In a sense, they're saying, lest we obey God. <laughs> Let's make such a name for ourselves so we don't have to obey God. God said, I want to show my glory. I want to show my glory in this whole world that I've created. I've created you to image me and I've given you all these functions and I've called you into a relationship with myself. Now fill the earth, spread out, show my glory, develop into different ethnies and cultures and all of that, my glory will be known. And what do the people say? Let's make such a name for ourselves that we don't have to listen to God. This is long before the enlightenment and this is humanism at its core. This is what humanism, what does this sound like? Remember last week I said the theme of humanism is the song, We Are the World? This is We Are the World. This is, we are the ones who are going to save ourselves. And the result of that, I, I'm not gonna look at the whole account of Hebrews, or I mean Genesis 11 here. The result of that is God judged them and God scattered them. God spread them out. Which brings me to the second point, when man scattered. God judged them, but there was also grace. Two things happened when man scattered. The first is that this design of diversity began to happen. People did start filling the earth. They did start to display God's glory in a variety of different ways. I want you to hear this. Diversity is God's design. It is part of his plan. We aren't all supposed to be the same. We aren't all supposed to have the same sin color. We aren't 
all supposed to have the same culture with the same preferences. Diversity is God's design because diversity is who God is. God is three persons. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. They are distinct persons, diverse, if you will, yet unified in a triune way. They experience this triunity in love and in harmony as as members of the Godhead. This is who God is, and this is who he's created us to be. Diversity is a part of God's design because diversity is who God is. We are not all supposed to be the same. Now, if you have a human-centered, I want to make a name for myself, that's what it would feel like. But if you have a God-centered view of the world, if you want to see God manifested, he's actually manifested in all of these wonderful ways, in the distinctiveness of all of his people. And that's a beautiful thing. I want you to hear that. God is manifest in all of these wonderful ways, in the distinctiveness of his people. His glory is more fully known in diversity. Not every ethne has the same kind of emotional level, right? Some ethnes are more emotional people than others. Some ethnes are more rational people than others. Some ethnes are more given to a strong will. Some ethnes are more given to hospitality. Some ethnes are given more given to efficiency. And in all of this, God's glory is known. You know one of the greatest things you can do? One of the greatest things you can do is to experience the worship of God in a context that is very different from your own. Go worship the Lord in Africa. Go worship the Lord in South America. Go worship the Lord in South Korea. Go worship the Lord in New England. All of that is different. All of that worship is very different. Yet, all of that worship pleases the Lord. Not one of those groups loves the Lord more than the other, even though one may have more of a prominent emotional response to the Lord. One may have a more prominent willful response to the Lord. One may have more prominent thoughtful response to the Lord. None of those groups love the Lord more than the other. They're all expressing different ways of loving God and the fullness of God is known in this diversity. So when man was scattered, this amazing thing happened. These ethnes, these cultures, they started to develop. Don't be blinded by your own normative life, right? I think it's so easy. We, we grew up, well, our experience is what is normal, right? But our, your experience is just your experience. And, 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 if you're, and if you have a, I want to make a name for myself, I am the center of the world, then you will be tempted to put your norm on all other groups, but if, if you really have a God-centered view to say, how, God, are you manifesting yourself in all different kinds of people, you, you'll be able to experience different cultures and see the hand of the Lord at work. Uh, you know, I, I've been on a lot of mission trips. Some of y'all know Barrett Fisher was a missionary in Southeast Asia um, for a long time. And I've been on different mission trips, but, but those ones that I went on with Barrett in Southeast Asia were the ones where I was maybe most kind of engaged with some of the leaders, and we would be planning these events that we were going to have. Um, to try to help the mission of God go forward. And I'll be honest, as a Western kind of American leader type guy, those experiences can be very frustrating for me because I'd sit around in the, this, you know, with this group of Indonesian leaders 
and they were so slow and how they made decisions and they would talk about everything and and I'd be like guys like let's 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 go here like there's work to do let's get let's get this thing done right <clears throat> I was blinded by my own normative self right the western way is the Western way, it's not wrong. And I was thinking, you know what, you know the symbol, America is very kind of English in our founding. And, and what is like the symbol of England or Great Britain? It is, I think we have a picture here. It's a clock. It is, we care about being on time. We care about being functional. We care about being efficient, right? And there, there's something good about that. There's something wonderful about that. But there is more than that. Don't be blinded by your own normative self. God created humanity with this scattering in mind so that his fullness could be known in different ways and in different people. But there was another thing that happened when man scattered, and it is this. This propensity to make a name for ourselves didn't leave. We still wanted to make a name for ourselves, we, we still wanted to be predominant. We still wanted to make a name for ourselves so that we didn't have to obey God. And what this has led to is division and wars. These nations began warring against each other, trying to show aggression against each other, trying to get everybody to conform to their way because they didn't want to be patient. They didn't want to have to listen to the other people. They didn't want to be uncomfortable by having to get along with all of these different ethnes, with these different groups. Just, just do it like I do it. Just come into my way. Just listen to me. We're actually seeing this right now in a big way in Russia and Ukraine. One ethne warring against another. One ethne wanting to have predominance, wanting to make a name for itself against another. But we also see this in very small ways. We, we experience this in, in interactions that we have all the time. When you come up against different people or different groups that disagree with you, that have a different perspective than you, are you really quick to ask, why do they see things that way? Let me try to understand their perspective. Or do you just immediately cut them off and say, they're the problem? You know what humanism always does? I want you to hear this. This is the problem with a secular humanistic world. If you, believe, if you live in a world where humans are the answer, where humans can triumph, where we are the world, if you live in that world, it's okay until evil still exists. But if you live in that world where humans are the answer and evil still exists, then what do you do? Who do you blame? And the humanistic answer to that, you know who the humanists blame? Them. Them. It's always their fault. It's always them. If they would only think like I do, if they would only see the things like I do, if they would only just listen to me. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? Everyone wants to rule. Everyone wants to... To, to make a name for ourselves, for everybody to have to listen to me. Which brings me to the third point. When man is redeemed. When man was created, God made him, God made her, God made women and women to know him, to display his glory, to scatter throughout the world, to fill the earth. But they didn't listen. They sought after their own glory. They stuck together. They tried to make a name for themselves. They didn't have to listen to the word of God. And God scattered them. And when he scattered them, these diversities, 
began to develop that were a beautiful display of God in different ways among different people, but sin still reigned. People fought against each other. Everyone wanted to rule the world. And again, back to Psalm 2. All these nations are raging. All these kings are warring against each other. And here's God's response. God says, as for me, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, on my holy hill. Here's the irony. All of these nations are warring. All of these people are going after each other, trying to, to be dominant against the other. And it's led to racism and division and hatred and colonialism and genocide and wars and all these things. And, and all of these kings that, that, that present themselves as the one who can finally bring us into righteousness and justice, they all make big promises, but they never deliver, do they? <laughs> oh, they never deliver. They never deliver. I mean, just think about like presidential slogans. Every president, when, if you just elect me, it's gonna be like this and it's gonna be amazing. If you just elect me, it's gonna be like this and it's gonna be amazing. If you just elect me, it's gonna be like this and it's gonna be amazing. All the kings do this. And you know what all the kings also do? They all take on humanism. They say it's their fault and it's their fault and it's their fault. We just gotta get rid of them and then we'll be okay. That's what all the kings do. And nobody delivers on their promises. And we're left at the same place that the author of Revelation is left. Look at verse 3 of chapter 5. It says, No one in heaven and on earth or under earth was able to open the scroll, was able to judge humanity and know the truth and unite us and save us. No one was able. No one was able to open the scroll and look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into us, into it. This, this section begins with this question, who is worthy, right? Who is the worthy king? Who is the true king, the rightful king that can unite the people? Who is the one that can bring justice and righteousness Who's the one that can redeem us? Who's the one that can restore us back to God? Who is the one who is worthy? And the author here is lamenting and he's weeping. And I think we can all identify with this. No one is found worthy. I believed in this guy. I believed in that gal. I believed in this person. I believed in this thing. And it's all failed me. No one is worthy. Who is worthy? And the answer is there's only one king. All these nations are warring. But the great irony is there is one king from one nation that actually will unite, that actually can judge, that actually can rule them all. Look at verse five. One of the elders said to me, I'm weeping. No one is worthy. But then one of the elders said, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has conquered so that he can open the scroll and it's seven seals. He's the one that's gonna undo all these mysteries. He's the one that's gonna unite us. He's the one that's going to rightly rule the lion of Judah, the root of David, the king of Israel. All these nations have been warring. God says, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill, 
Here's the great mystery that is revealed, is that Israel's king, Israel's true Messiah, this king from this one tribe, from this one people, Israel's Messiah, this is the great mystery of the Bible, is actually the Messiah of the whole world. This one Messiah, this one king from this one tribe is actually the one who can save all the tribes and all the people. This one king, this, this one Messiah from this one tribe is actually calling to himself, as we later see, a kingdom of priests from all the tribes. Israel's king is the Messiah of the whole world to unite all the people, not to strip people of their diversity, but to unite them in their diversity. Who is worthy? There is one, the King of Israel, Jesus. And the question is, have you seen this? Is he your king? Have you seen his worth? Have you seen that he is the one that can restore you to God, that, that, that he is the ruler over all? Have you given your loyalty and your life to Jesus? Have you believed in him? Now, if you're new to this, you might be thinking, hold on. What are you saying? I'm supposed to believe in the Jewish Messiah? What makes him so worthy, right? Why is he the, the king that I've been waiting for? Why is he the one that's really gonna restore all this and unite all of this? What makes him so special? Why is he the hope of every nation? Why is he going to unite all of this diversity? And it's an amazing turn in the passage. If you, if you weren't here, we had to stream the service, but Jeremy Brooks preached on the same passage right before the new year, and it was beautiful. But look at verse five. It says, look, the lion, look, the king, look, and they all look because they want a king, because they want to be united, because they want justice, because they want everything that you and I want. Look. In verse six, what do they see? And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. You see this moment with me? Look, a king. Look, a lion. Look, the one who's going to rescue us all. And everybody looks with this great anticipation of seeing all this strength and a lion and a sword and a king and a victor. And what do they see when they turn and look? A bloody lamb. And it's the lamb who is worthy. It's the lamb who is the worthy king. And this is what makes Christianity so different from everything else in the world. You know what humanism says? It says it's them. It's them. It's them. Put me in power and I'll kill them and I'll put them down. You know what Christianity says? That's what humanism says. You know what Christianity says? What real Christianity says? You know what? If you're truly a Christian, you know what you've said and what I've said? It's me. It's, it's, it's actually me. I'm the one that needs a new heart. I'm the one who rages. I'm the one who wants to make 
a name for myself. I'm the one who took all that God has entrusted in me, this relational, this functional, this, this sacred nature that he's given me. I'm the one that spent that all on myself and not on God. It's me. That's what Christianity says. You don't need a lion. I don't need a lion. What I need is a lamb. What does I need is a sacrifice. What I need is someone to set me right. What makes Jesus so worthy is he comes to you and me as the lamb. That's what you actually need. Someone that actually heal your soul. And he comes to be the sacrifice. He comes to set himself before God and to lay his life down as a ransom for your life and for my life so that we can be restored to God. Do you see this? He comes, it's, it's not like any other king. Every other king comes with a sword and says, let me tear them down, let me chop them down. It's them, it's them, it's them, I'll make you strong. Jesus says, no, 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 <laughs> it's not them, it's you. But I've given my life for you. I've paid your debt. Your sins are forgiven. Jesus comes to the lamb and that is what makes him worthy to be the king over everybody. I want you to hear this. You know a problem, a mistake we make in missions and, and this has been going on. I'm not pointing the finger at missions agencies today because this is happening since the very beginning of the church. In the very beginning of the church, you had all these people that were Jewish people and they, and they came to know Jesus and they saw how he gave them freedom from their law and how he gave them victory and how he really was the Jewish Messiah. They believed. And so they went out and they started preaching the gospel to all of these different ethnes. But here was their here was their tactic. They said, first you have to become Jewish and then you can become Christian. We're gonna impose our will on y'all and then you can rightly see that you need Jesus too. And we do the same thing still today. We say, well, look, first you kind of got to become American and then you can become a Christian. Here's what Paul pushes back throughout the whole New Testament. This is basically his argument in Romans 1 and Romans 2. He's saying, you don't have to do that. <laughs> you don't have to do that. You don't have to strip them of their identity. You don't have to strip them of their culture, or their ethnicity. We, even within their own system, even within their own culture, they already know they need a lamb. They already know that they have sinned against God. Their, their own consciences convict them. They already know that, that they're broken and so do you and so do I. We all know. What we need is a lamb. But I just want you to say he is the lamb who is also a lion. He is the one who is humble enough and sacrificial enough to give his life for us, to humble himself before us so that one day we, as a kingdom of priests, can rule with him along with all the ethnes and all the tribes. And if you know this, if you know this, if this gospel has penetrated you, if you're looking for the lamb today, it will dramatically impact the way you look at everybody else around you. Different ethne, different culture, different skin color, different language. It will totally change the way you see the whole world. If you're following a king today that's going to make a great name for yourself, then you'll never see Jesus rightly. You know, the great irony of Jesus, he came to his own people. He came to his own Jewish people. Remember the scene in Luke 4 when he goes into the synagogue in Nazareth and he reads the great messianic passage and he says, 
you know, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He says, today this is filled in your hearing. And you know what? At first they were all really happy. They said, yes, the Messiah is here. But then you know what he did? He made them all mad. He said, and this Messiah has come for the people of Sidon and for the people of Syria. And when the people heard that, they said, what? You mean, you mean we're not gonna go chop those people down? You know, we, we have to go serve those people. We have to go love those people too. And they chased him out of their city. <sighs> what kind of king are you looking for? Are you looking for one that will make a great name for you? Or are you looking for one that will restore you to God so that you can make a great name for him? What kind of king are you looking for? Are you really even looking for a lamb? That's what I would ask you today. Or have you come singing, how can this church help me? How can this message help me make a bigger name out of myself? And one preacher said it this way, he said, there was a time when Christians rejoiced at being deemed worthy to suffer for the Lord for what they believed. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. If today's church does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authenticity, forfeit the loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning. That preacher, by the way, was Martin Luther King from a Birmingham jail. And I want to ask you the same question. Are, are we just a thermometer kind of reflecting culture? Or are we people that know God? Will we follow the way of Jesus, which is not the way of self-exaltation, but is the way of God-exaltation? Do we, do we delight to see God glorified, not just ourselves? I want to close today with a couple of practical words. Um, and there's so much you could say here. Gosh, I wish I could do a second. I wish I could do a whole second thing and say, okay, let's practically talk about this. But, but two things before I close. First, as we think about this as Christians, the degree to which you will actually love and serve other ethnes, people different from you, is connected to the degree in which you understand yourself to be loved and accepted by Jesus. Are you of the lamb or are you of, you know, the tower? That's probably a good way to put it. <laughs> are you just out to make a name for yourself or are you of the lamb? Are you really realize, man, I am just someone who has been loved by the lamb who has laid himself down for me and I am called to live my whole life for the glory of God. The degree to which you'll actually love and serve others is connected to the degree in which you understand this, how great you are loved and accepted by Jesus. And I wanna get really practical here. You know, we, we live in an age um, that, is, that talks about racism and race and all these things a lot. And, and, and I want to talk about this in a couple of layers. There's, I'm going to use the word tribalism or anti-tribalism. But there is a confessional layer, right? And so and I, I hope today 
that no one is here saying, I confess that my tribe, that my race or whatever is superior to all the others. If, if that is true of you, you need to repent of that. That is anti-God. So there's a confessional layer. I hope most of us would confess, obviously, to be anti-tribal. But there's also a symbolic layer. And the symbolic layer is I want to I be known as this. I want to be kind of known as anti-tribal. I want to be known as, you know, open-minded and okay with all the things. The third is ideological, which is, do you actually think in a way, I am, you know, of a group, my way is the best, or do you think in a way, no, God is manifesting himself differently in different people, even people that make different decisions than me. And then the final is just functional. Are you actually willing to be the kind of person that gives yourself away to others so that God's glory may be manifested not just among you, not just among your tribe, but among all people. I think this is a really helpful way to think about this. And to my first point, or to the point I'm trying to make here, you'll go deeper in this. You'll move toward the functional. You'll, you'll start giving your life away in an actual way. You'll actually live out sacrifice. You'll, you'll actually be discomforted. You'll actually give yourself to others the more you believe that you are loved and accepted by Christ. The more the gospel penetrates your heart, I think a lot of Christianity right now, to quote King, Martin Luther King, is kind of following, following along, not the thermostat, but the thermometer of the day. And saying, oh, people are talking about this. How can I kind of give the right symbols to show that I really care about this, to show this is important in my life? But there's no actual functional effort in their lives to serve and to sacrifice and to give for others. And I would even say, as long as you're hanging out in those top two levels, you might just be trying to make more of a name for yourself and not actually trying to love the Lord. And then the second thought is, is this, the Christian life, spiritual maturity means at least this, that your thoughts and deeds drift more toward the other than yourself. Now, here's the deal. Let's be honest. Let's shoot straight with each other. I think about myself. I think about my preferences. I think about my comfort a lot, right? Because I'm not that spiritually mature. I've got a lot of growth to do. But as you grow and as you find your identity in the Lord, an e evidence of that is that your thought life and your deed life drift away from yourself, you start considering others. You start listening to others. You start thinking, how can I leverage? And here's, here's the thing. How, do, how can I leverage the authority and the capacities that I have for that person, for this person, for that person, and not just for myself? Spiritual maturity, the way of Christ, means at least this, that your thought life and your deed life increasingly point to others and not just yourself. Are you of the tower or are you of the lamb, right? Are you just out to make a name for yourself? Or are you the one who's saying, man, my king is really a lamb who has given his life for me so that I could be restored to God, so that I could be set free of my sin. And as we think about these things, I wanna celebrate with you this communion meal. And I want you to hear these words of Jesus. He says to you and he says to me, this is my body broken, broken for you.
You hear that? To hear the way of Christ? This is my body. This is my life. Broken. Sacrificed. For you. Because I love you. Because I notice you. Because I see you. Because I want to redeem you. Are you of the Lamb? This is my blood. This is my blood spilled out for you. Are you of the lamb? Is this who you are? Are you here to make a name for yourself? Or are you here to realize I've been made in the image of God, called to bring glory to him and called to see his glory manifest among all peoples? Let's pray. Father, move in our hearts today. Help us to know this gospel. Change us by it. The degree into which we know how deeply we're loved by you will totally inform the degree in which we're able to love others without having to make a name for ourselves. But only because we want to make more of a name of you. We want to see your glory manifest among all the people. Lord, give us faith to see the Lamb. Give us hearts to believe and to look to the Lamb. Pull us away from the tower, Lord. I pray in Jesus' name.